This is Digital Pathology Today. Now, here's your host, Dr. Joseph Anderson. What is the current state of the practice in digital pathology as we enter 2022? Where are we in terms of integrated workflows, predictive and prognostic algorithms based off of HD morphology? And what about incorporating artificial intelligence into workflows or diagnostic assist devices? Welcome to Digital Pathology Today. I'm Joe Anderson. Our guest is Dr. Michael Feldman, Professor of Pathology and Laboratory Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania, as well as Vice Chair for Clinical Services and Director of the Office of Pathology Informatics. We're going to be talking about all these things and in addition, perhaps perspective from an academic setting on digital pathology, where are our digital fellows, these artificial intelligence-enabled machines that will organize, prepare, preview, maybe even diagnose cases, prepare the report, everything except for signing them out? Is that going to be our reality? What does image analysis and computational algorithms mean for the diagnostic acumen of trainees or the next generation of pathologists? Dr. Michael Feldman from University of Pennsylvania, welcome to the podcast. Thanks a lot, Joe. Nice to be here. We're excited to hear from you. I want to first start off with the state of the practice. Where are we in mid-2021? You know, we're a year after this global pandemic, which saw kind of an acceleration of digital pathology, particularly with pathologists being able to sign out cases remotely, and everyone is very optimistic. But I just want to check in and see, you know, where are we? in terms of practical solutions that we can implement or that we have implemented in actual practice. So I think a big topic is integrated workflows. So first of all, what, what does that mean? What are the steps it takes to, to implement that? And, and where are we right now? I think we're at the very, very beginning phases in the United States of seeing adoption of digital pathology. It's expensive, right? And, and so putting together the business case, the use case, to begin putting scanners in, to begin integrating that into our practice. You know, we're taking a phased approach at Penn. The first phase is to begin to get the team used to modern scanners, you know, what the image quality looks like. Everybody has seen digital slides, but, you know, those are first, second, third generation devices, and the the newer scanners are are quite a bit better quality. And then... uh, starting to think about where's the value after you get a digital slide. One of the things we're thinking is, you know, with some of the early AI software coming out, not FDA cleared yet, but I have no doubt that they'll be in front of the FDA in fairly short order. They really present the opportunity. I I like to use this term digital fellows, where each software application becomes an express digital fellow that does work for the pathologist. It'll screen my prostate biopsies. It'll find all the cancers. It'll triage the cases. And so, you know, those those present value. Those present value because we're a growing health system at Penn. We're hiring more GU surgeons. There's more prostate biopsies, more patients coming in. And so if I can make my pathologist more efficient because the digital fellow is working at 2 a.m. in the morning, and when they come in after their coffee, they already have everything previewed with a digital fellow that's 98, 99% accurate. You know, we see value in that um, in terms of getting people home a little bit earlier, preventing misdiagnoses, getting a consistency and a uniformity across people and practitioners at multiple sites so that what I call a three plus three or a three plus four is the same thing at, at one of our other six hospitals. 
So we see real value in that. But what we're not rushing to is to do a complete digital install and convert all of our glass to digital. You know, I think there's still challenges to that. It's, it's very expensive and the business case is hard to articulate. We're proceeding into this pairing up software applications, AI, machine learning, that do things for us. And those are the cases that'll get scanned and we'll have the algorithms run on them to do work for us, make us better. Okay. Yeah. I think it is uh, very daunting, right? Just coming up with an end-to-end solution or going fully digital, I think is is very daunting. So I think an approach a lot of groups are taking is, you know, how can we identify a place where it makes sense to jump in? Yep. And this idea of the business case, I think is kind of coming to the the forefront now, the DPA came out with a, a white paper recently kind of addressing that question. What just what is the business case for digital pathology? Because I think it's, you know, in some form it's been with us for about 20 years or so. Right. And we kind of know what the secondary benefits are. It's fun. Oh, gee, wouldn't it be great to look at a computer monitor than a microscope? It's gonna be nice to share my cases with people all over the world. You know, they're gonna give me their expert input. You know, I don't have to schlep glass slides everywhere, Mm -hmm. but how does that translate into dollars and cents? You know, what efficiencies can we gain? How can we make uh, things cost effective? And I guess the bigger question is, is it going to make sense to invest in these systems? And I think it up until now it has, you know, it's been kind of a lot of hand-waving and glib talk. I mean, one of the things we're looking to do, you know, so CMS and and getting billing codes for digital is is something that the DPA is going to you know, DPA cap, so on and so forth. They're going to lead the charge on this. But, you know, that's an uphill battle and it's a multi-year process at its best. I think there are other opportunities to commoditize the use of digital pathology. And, you know, once we're up and running and we've got the AI in place, you know, I think there are interesting opportunities to go to the insurance players and articulate a path that says, yeah, you send me all your prostate cases and and we'll read them this way and and you know we we've got a better mousetrap and so maybe not commoditizing it by getting more per rvu but just getting more rvus because we can do more work when the ai is actually working and the real value to the health system you know i I jokingly say i'm going to put up a big billboard on the highway that says you know your prostate is worth pen medicine you know I'm, i'm half joking half real is you know, if we have a better mousetrap that provides a better quality, prevents misses, gets more uniformity, why wouldn't you have your material seen at Penn when we become the one-stop shop, you know, in, in our region? So, yeah, right. I think there are different ways of commoditizing it while the RVU story and CMS reimbursement, you know, does its thing. That is interesting. As as an aside, I have seen uh, billboards on buses going by, <laughs> kind of advertising for the competing business. I know Philadelphia is a very uh, competitive market between Penn, Fox Chase, Temple, Jefferson, and and so forth. So I think really, you know, how do we add value? You know, what is going to be the advantage of coming to Penn, or what's going to be the advantage of having your specimens reviewed by our our pathology group? And so, so just out of curiosity, so if we go the route of Adopting new CPT codes, moving away from 88305, you know, 88423 or what what have you, with the expectation that we're able to be more high throughput, we get more efficiencies, maybe the quality's better because we have these digital fellows reviewing our cases. Is reimbursement going to be higher or is it going to be lower uh, per case? To, to get more out of CMS is sort of an act of God, right? I mean, 
I think that's going to be hard. <laughs> I mean, that's that's kind of the depressing thing about medicine or you know economics in general is the pie always gets split up into more pieces, right? And so you'd think, well, with this all these great new innovations, it's somehow going to be more you know more worthwhile for us to do. But is that going to be the case? I'm not looking there for the business case. I just think that's you know trying to get blood out of the stone. Maybe somebody will get lucky and we'll get a little bit more out. Perfectly happy to write letters and support them to do that. But I think the better value is what I can bring to the health system to drive more business to Penn Medicine. I mean, Penn Medicine makes its dollars on providing complete care, total care. And so if we have a better mousetrap and, and we can do the diagnostics better and, and they can grow their prostate health business, I think that's a more compelling case. And, you know, then I can negotiate with people that I know to say, this is how much it costs. You, you, some of that new business was brought in through the diagnostics. And so let's make sure we cover the cost of the business. Yeah. Yeah. That is compelling. Now you said you have these, you envision these AI fellows running around or digital, yeah. <laughs> digital fellows and yeah. they're not 98% accurate. That sounds better than, uh, the human being fellows to be discovered, right? I mean, that's, <laughs> that's, that's the marketing hype. You know, yeah. it's, it's like bringing in a new chemistry analyzer. Does it really do what it says? <laughs> and, and so you have to be rigorous in how you evaluate this as, as rigorous as we are in laboratory medicine. It's not a toy and you've got to put it through the accuracy and the precision and the reproducibility. And you got to test everything that's in the IFU, the intention for use. Um, as these things go through uh, their clearance process. I need on, on Monday when I scan a slide and on Friday, I better get the same damn result, right? I mean, you, you've got to go through the, the machinations to really prove to yourself that uh, these algorithms work. Yeah. When all is said and done, accurate, precise, and reproducible. Hmm. No question about that. It so goes, I goes back to basics, you know, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Can't Can't get away from the basics, the blocking and tackling, as they say. So, you know, when we incorporate AI, I mean, I think there's several different types of workflows that you're kind of alluding to. You know, one would be previewing the cases or maybe triaging the cases, you know, so getting the right case, Primary the right, screening. right pathologist. Yeah. yeah, screening. And then another aspect, you know, would be a more narrow application, say, in previewing a very specific thing like prostate biopsies, which is probably the most narrow application I can think of because we're generally looking for the same thing every time, right? Is there cancer here? Yes or no? Yep. And and maybe if there is cancer, what's the Gleason grade? But that's, you know, presumably less important than finding the the specific suspicious area. I would argue it's actually both. I I want my first prostate AI to find the cancers. I want it to Gleason grade it and, you know, score it and grade group it. I want it to find perineural and lymphovascular invasion. I want it to flag if it sees extra prostatic extension. You know, I want this to be a good fellow. I want, I want not a super thin AI. I want an AI okay. that has a little more um, oomph to it. And then I want it to write the report so that when I'm looking at the slide and looking at the report, I can say, yep, you got it right. You got it right. I'm going to modify this and then copy and paste into my computer system and verify the case. Okay, so that is literally a fellow, right? He's doing everything. Start literally to a fellow. I'm not kidding when I use the metaphor digital fellow. <laughs> okay. And so how, realistically, how far away are we from this reality? So that software is up and running in multiple places outside the US. You know, I think the uh, company Ibex is going to be 
submitting to the FDA to get this uh, approved in the United States. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So Ibex, we've had them on the podcast. They have deployments throughout the world. They are need to overcome this FDA barrier, so to speak. But yeah, I think we're all we're all excited about that. And so then actually implementing it in your institution, right? So FDA approval is or FDA clearance yep. is nice, but then what's it gonna take? It's not gonna work out of the box, is it right? You have to go through all this, you need to validate it or verify that it works in your institution. Yep, absolutely. We're gonna manage our our digital pathology environment using our radiology packs. So we have the Sectra packs um, at Penn and as part of our first phase of digital pathology is we'll, we're enabling the digital path side of Sectra and uh, Sectra and Ibex are now working on integrating, moving the images out of um, Sectra into uh, either Amazon or Azure, having the Ibex run and then bring the data back uh, into the Sectra packs. So that's, that's an active process right now. Okay. And so you mentioned the PAX system. So I think it's interesting, you know, as pathology goes further on this digital journey, uh, you know, and, you know, radiology has been digital for some time, but do you, do you foresee kind of a, a fusion of the two specialties or inev- these, I mean, they're after all both image-based specialties. And then, you know, once pathology images become data, perhaps even more so, but there's been silos in medicine, or I guess that's human nature. There's (laughs) there's silos everywhere, but particularly in in medicine. There's a financial incentive to have silos, right? We each get paid for our RBUs. And so why why keep them together? You you can separate them because I'm getting paid for my RVU, radiology is getting paid for its RVU. But when, when the RVUs eventually go away, if they do, and we get paid for taking care of the patient with a single lump sum payment. It makes it more compelling to start talking about, did I really need those three radiology studies or should I have gone right to the biopsy after the first one? You know, then you're talking about, it's much easier to see a convergence. So having the digital pathology inside the radiology makes sense because, you know, so many of our modalities in pathology require us to look at the radiology. I need to know why did they biopsy this, this organ? And uh, a lot of the information on lungs, breast, not as much prostate, but maybe a little, certainly bone and soft tissue, liver, pancreas, you know, what, what was the lesion they were going after? What was the gross? And, and so being able to, to juxtapose between those two makes a lot of sense. And, and frankly, having a, a PACS, you've got a fully HIPAA compliant, secure environment with a team that's running and and enterprise imaging operation with large data storage. It's all sitting there. And and what I need to do is teach them a little bit about pathology. We need to add some storage capacity to it, but I don't have to recreate the wheel. So from the enterprise standpoint, it's much more effective uh, financially to leverage that. So these silos you think are at least now largely driven by RVUs or, you know, fee-for-service type billing, you know, rather than a value-based mm-hmm. billing. I think that's part um, of but it. But is, you know, but then as technologically, as as the specialties become more intertwined, you know, I mean, do you think we're going to see a more unified approach in terms of diagnostics and r- reporting, or maybe even, you know, having pathologists interpret radiology images and use, utilizing things like uh, specimen mammograms and so forth? Well, we do that already, but we don't bill for it. 
when we sign out breast biopsies, we're looking at the radiologic images to make sure what I'm seeing microscopically correlates with what the mammographers were seeing. And when there isn't a good correlation, there's a phone call, right? Then you're, you're talking to the mammographer and you're saying, okay, this is what I'm seeing. What did you see? And, and you're, you're wrestling with, is that a good correlation or not? Sometimes it's not. And then we just miss the lesion. Other times, um, you know, they're comfortable when we describe what we're seeing and, and then other times they say, no, but I'll, that person will come back. I'll, I'll, I'll just bring them back in three months or six months. So I'm, I'm comfortable watching it a little bit more closely. Yeah. I think we do do that, but we do it in concert. I mean, I'm not a trained radiologist. Uh, I'm never going to be. And, and I think there's a domain expertise they bring to the table. Uh, there's a domain expertise we bring to the table. Moving digital might allow us to practice in the same space. So the reading room in breast might be a reading room that has a bunch of mammographers and then one or two pathologists reading the cases as they come off the scanners. So instead of having to go chase somebody, I can just turn around and say, look at, look at Ms. Smith. And this is what I'm seeing. Is it, does it fit? And, you know, so I, I think there's some opportunities there. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That does sound like an intriguing feature. And what about silos even within pathology? I think the silos no, between we, AP and CP. We, we don't have those. What molecu- are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> you know, even molecular, molecular and anatomic pathology, which you think would be a good marriage, right? You know, um, are we hindered by silos there? And, you know, are we going to be moving to a more integrated reporting format, do you see? I think we will. We're starting to wrestle with how to create an integrated report. You know, we're, we're trying to piece it together uh, from our disparate systems. It's certainly not, not easy. But I, I think there are opportunities to do that. I think within the PACs, there are some interesting opportunities as well because, you know, you want to go from the radiographic lesion to the tissue diagnosis and from the tissue diagnosis to the genomics. You know, having the, the radiology and the pathology together, having an application that can run on the biopsy that says, I found all your tumor and it's 13.5% tumor nuclei that then feeds over to the genomic information system. Yeah, I, I think that's coming. So I, I definitely see that. It'd be really cool if, um, if, if my PACs could also handle the genomics information. Wouldn't that be cool? <laughs> so, you know, maybe. Uh- yeah, yeah, that would. I mean, I think driving towards a, a grand unified approach, so to speak, you know, breaking down the silos or simplifying things. Yeah, so so maybe uh, the, the genome information systems can communicate, you know, through the PACs, through APIs. The nice thing about the PAC systems is they're a little bit more open and accessible than the LISs. Some of the older LISs don't have web service architectures and you know, the Cetra PACs is a, is, a, is a tad more interoperable and interchangeable than some of the older LISs. So there's, yeah. there's a little bit more you can do. Okay. Now let's talk about quality control, which is a very important topic in pathology. And I think probably is going to become, take more of a center stage, you know, as, as we move towards a digital workflow. Absolutely. You know, so I think for several reasons. So one is, you know, these digital fellows that you have running around, you know, could you think of them under the guise of quality control? So we actually have a grant where we built a a quality control application to monitor the output of the histology lab. And so, you know, as humans, we read through some some pretty messy slides sometimes, and and we don't ask for the recut until it gets really ugly. You know, but eventually it gets beyond what, what even we're comfortable reading. 
But the AI application, if there's bubbles on the slide, if there are folds in the tissue, and it can't read that worth a hill of beans. We developed an application. Uh, I do a lot of this work with Anant Matabushi and his team, and, and we actually got an R01 to fund this that we call HistoQC. It's, it's actually out there on GitHub. You can download it and enhance it and add more code to it. But it, it's basically, as the H&Es come off the scanners, uh, this software is running over the slides and looking for areas that are out of focus, poorly stained, where the glass cracked, the, there are air bubbles underneath the, uh, you know, the slide. There's uh, folds in the tissues and whatnot. And it's highlighting those. And then you can do one of two things. You know, you can output that information and give the lab feedback that says, okay, of the 10,000 slides you made today, you know, here's, here's the defects. And, and you can, you know, sort them by, okay, these different pre-analytic uh, changes. You could then link it up to the LIS that says, okay, who cut those? <laughs> and, and give, mm-hmm. give you know, dense feedback to the, the manager to say, okay, this, this tech's having a bad day. Go talk to them. And then the other thing it can do is it can obscure areas that the AI shouldn't look at because we know there's a defect in that slide. Or it could simply say, you know, you have too many defects in that slide. Don't even bother scanning it. Just recut the darn thing. And, you know, recut it at whatever, two in the morning and get it out to Feldman before he gets there. So, yeah. So we did it. We had a not Matabushi on the, the podcast and it's fascinating because I think, you know, going digital, I think really is going to highlight the importance of high quality H and E stains, right? Cause in the old days, like you said, it was kind of a badge of honor to fight through <laughs> the bad staining yeah. and the bubbles and what have you, or you'd say, well, it's a poor carpenter that blames his tools, right? So you yeah. kind of, and you know, another aspect is that, we weren't really looking at color, right? Like you're admo- you admonished, like, oh, don't pay attention to the color. We're just looking at the size and shape of the nucleus, you know, mm-hmm. what's making glands and, you know, this, that, and the other. But, you know, color is just an artifact, <laughs> right? You know, you're, not, you're not making the diagnosis because it's purple. Right. And, <laughs> you know, but now as, you know, as we move from human beings looking at these things to digital fellows looking at these things, I have a feeling the digital fellows are going to be much more interested in what the color is, what the qualities of the color are, what the contrast is, you know, because in some sense, that's all really all we have is the color. That's right. Yeah, we wrote a paper a number of years back that looked at the different features that you can extract and, and some of the features are invariant to color and, and other algorithms are extremely sensitive to color, to the scanner, you know, between two scanners, they produce a different color space. They produce a different pixel size. So yeah, these, these pre-analytics are really, really important to pay attention to. And, you know, as, as you go shopping for AI, one of the things you really need to know is, how the hell did they train this thing? Did they really go about and capture all of the biologic variation in the disease? So did they see enough cases? And did they test this in enough laboratories with enough H&E variation, enough microtomy variation, enough scanner variation to capture all of that so that when you bring it into your lab, it's actually going to work? I think that's to be seen. I think some companies do it better than others. And I think that's one of the things the FDA is going to have to regulate a little bit is, is in the intention for use, they're going to have to have some performance metrics that can give us, the customers, 
the confidence that these things have been designed and tested in a rigorous method. Yeah. So now with these digital fellows specifically, do you think of them in terms of quality control? That is, are they checking your work? Are they checking the work of a human being? Or do you see it more as a primary read and then you, the human being, are checking the work of the digital fellow? So I think there are two models. There's primary read and secondary read fellows. I like the primary read because if the performance is high enough, it's real time and you're you're not reworking. You know, the secondary where you make a diagnosis and then the system says, okay, did you get it right? It's a rework process and that's not going to make me more efficient. So I I think the primary read is going to give us more bang for the buck. Although I had an interesting conversation with the folks from Google, you know, they've got that enhanced microscopy where they project the AI into the oculars. You know, that that was interesting. Not giving you a diagnosis, but it's calling your attention to stuff as you look for things. I see. Hey, look over here. Yeah, yeah. You know, you're so, you're pushing the glass and it's and it's firing off red uh, highlights to say look over here. <laughs> yeah. So what does this mean for human being trainees? No, that's uh, a great question. Are we going to lose our acumen if we have digital fellows telling us where to look or what the answer is already? I mean, how are we going to train people when, when we have all these great tools out there in the basics? I love that question. So I'll tell you a story and you'll, you'll immediately understand it because you're, you're older like me. So I used to be really good at reading maps. You know, I used to get from point A to point B. I had a Rand McNally paper atlas in the back of my car and I could... I could find my way pretty much anywhere with that thing. But then GPS came out and uh, the Rand McNally went to the trunk (laughs) and the GPS was in the front seat. And I found myself in a city that I wasn't familiar with one day and I couldn't get a GPS signal. And uh, I was like, wow, how do I get out of here? (laughs) Um, (laughs) So your, your point of how do you, when you have these tools that are doing so much work for you, parts of your brain can atrophy. And so how do we train people? How do we maintain their skills? And how do we teach them the new skills of uh, becoming savvy purveyors of this uh, new equipment? I don't have an answer. We're wrestling with it intellectually. We haven't implemented anything yet. But I do think there are some opportunities where the digital pathology can create... uh, I'm spitballing it here, so I'll just throw out some ideas that are completely unbaked. But the ability to create collections of material that can be beamed to the trainee on a as-needed basis, right? And so normally the trainee learns by an apprentice style where they sit at the microscope with you, their day-to-day cases come to them, and, and that seems to work. But in a digital world, you don't have to wait for the case to come to you. It's sitting on spinning disks, and you can create collections, if you will. You work through these 500 prostates and you will become really good at something. I can push them to you at home, at work. Um, You can then spin up multi-headed microscopes and work with other trainees. You can then loop an attending in for virtual discussions. I, I think there's a way of, you know, they talk about the flipped classroom. You know, I'm wondering if there's an opportunity to flip the resonant training program a little bit. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I think there's always with great change comes great opportunity. So I think it's maybe just a matter of finding the sweet spot or finding what that is. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, um, I think we need to rethink it a little bit, just doing the apprentice style 
you could easily get lazy and let the digital fellow read it. And then you come to the attending and go, look, it's a three plus four. (laughs) (laughs) As opposed to, you know, really wrestling with it with the digital fellow turned off. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's going to be interesting. You know, yeah. I mean, maybe that's an answer, you know, turn off the digital fellow, right? Yeah. Which is, we need to somehow find a way to keep the skills sharp just on the basics, right? The, well, the, nice the old-fashioned learning way. The nice thing is in a PAX, we could code that, right? And so if we wanted to do that, we could have the fellow scored already. And then when the resident logs in, we hide those scores and we make the resident diagnose it. And then at the end, when they say, okay, I'm done, move on to the next case, then the fellow comes up and says, okay, this is what I got. This is what you got. Compare. And then you can go to the attending and do the final arbitration. Maybe that's the workflow. I don't know. I think we have to try a few things. Yeah, absolutely. It's going to be interesting. Well, Dr. Michael Feldman from University of Pennsylvania, thank you so much for being with us. Before we wrap up, maybe just tell us a little bit about yourself, your experiences in pathology and how you came to be interested in digital path. (laughs) It's a total accident. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I've spent my entire career at Penn. My initial intent was to go off and do tenure track R01 research. I did a postdoc and I got a taste of the grant world and it was it was tough. It was an eye-opening experience. And uh, so I came back and said, uh, I don't know if I want to do a pure tenure track. This Maybe there's a way of carving out a translational opportunity here. And uh, I spent a bunch of time talking with one of my mentors, John Tomaszewski. We spent a fair amount of time and, and he said, you know, there's this thing coming um, where we're going to be getting more into data um, and this digital stuff is going to, you know, not today, but, you know, over the next 20 years, 30 years, this is going to become big. And so I started reading about it and I was like, hmm, that's interesting. There's a whole aspect of practice that's digital, um, whether it's data analytics or digital pathology. I saw the writing on the wall that if I could combine my interest in technology with the practice of pathology, I could create something. So they gave me the latitude um, at Penn to play. It's about the first or second year into my faculty position, I met Anant. Anant was a a grad student, a postdoc at Penn, and we were working on a project together. I I love telling this story. He and I still get a good laugh out of it. He was um, trying to figure out in early MRs, where the cancer was in prostate. We were looking at, he had the prostates up on on the radiology image and I had the microscope and he's looking at the radiology and says, is this what prostate cancer looks like? And I said, no, no, look over here at the microscope. This is what prostate cancer looks like. And, And then we started talking about how all of the image processing he was doing in radiology was exactly what we had to do in pathology. It was just, we were gonna add red, green, and blue and give him really, really sharp detail at, you know, two-tenths of a micron. And uh, I said, you know, this whole field of computation on the glass, there's nobody competing with you right now. You could literally write the history of digital pathology. And uh, we've been we've been doing that ever since. You know, it doesn't hurt that he enjoys scotch as much as I do. So, <laughs> <laughs> so we have a lot of fun doing this. And, you know, we get together. I drive out to Cleveland. You know, once the pandemic's over, a couple of times a year, and we brainstorm and come up with new ideas, and then we go after grants on it. So it's, it's been amazing. 
That's, that's fantastic. Keeping it fresh with some scotch and some new ideas. Well, what, what excites you? Where do you see the field headed in the next 10 years or so? I think the idea of, of imaging tissue without making a slide is really interesting. Um, so I think that's exciting. You know, the idea that a, I, I practice breast pathology. So the idea that a woman could come in, have a biopsy, have it stained in a few seconds, and then have it imaged, and then have it read. Uh, before she's get she's gotten dressed to go home, I think is really compelling. So I, I think slideless imaging is is really exciting. I think interrogating tissues um, in complex ways um, with RNA probes, antibody probes in high dimension um, is going to be really interesting um, as we try and figure out how to tweak the immune system to uh, activate the immune system and select ways against tumors which tumors are immune active, which are cool, and which are ice cold. So I think that's going to be interesting. I think microscopy, you know, there's been some really exciting changes in microscopy that have won several Nobel Prizes. So I I think being able to interrogate tissue at resolutions beyond light um, with multi-parametric stains is going to allow us to see more and more phenotype within the tissues. You know, so you can begin to illuminate the epigenome that, that changes that causes changes in the nuclear appearance that we see and we call pleomorphism and, and anaplasia. And, and so, so beginning to understand that and revealing it through spatial structure of the chromatin. I think there's some really interesting details in human disease at a super resolution that um, are going to become part of pathology. I think PATH and RADS um, have really interesting non-overlapping modalities that can really inform patient outcomes. So I think integrated spaces are, are really cool and are, are going to become much more commonplace. So you know, those things excite me. Yeah. It sounds like we have a lot to look forward to. Well, our guest has been Dr. Michael Feldman from University of Pennsylvania. We'll see you next time on Digital Pathology Today.